Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you, Drew, for, um, for that. That was uh, a really good demonstration, I think, of church and what church is about. And it's not just the domain of one set of people. Um, we're all in it together. We're all a priesthood of believers. Um, so, as Drew said... Um, I think no one would argue that the last 18 months have been really very tough for all sorts of reasons, all sectors of society. We've had to navigate through all kinds of challenges. And if I was to ask each one of you, you would all have different stories of what's been hard and what's been easy. But I imagine as well that most of us have learned to value certain things that we didn't value before um, and discovered also that there are things we can do without. Again, if I were to ask you, you'd probably all come up with different things. Um, so here's a question. What about church? Have the restrictions we've been under made you think about what's important in church? What do you value? What is church really about? Did you love going on walks with people at two metres distance? Seven mile walks in some cases. <laughs> with the north wind blown in your face or checking out people's designer kitchens on Zoom calls. Like what, I've been thinking about this a lot. What is church really for? Why am I here? Why am I part of this church? Why am I part of any church? Um, so I'd like to ask you the question, if anyone's brave enough to just call out, what do you think church is? A family, okay? Anyone else? Communal witness. Oh, she's read my notes. <laughs> anyone else? What do you think? What isn't the church? Does anyone think this building is the church? But it's not. This building is not the church. As soon as Rich and Kate arrive to pray on a Sunday morning, then it's the church. But actually, this building by itself is not the church. It's, it's where we do church sometimes. Karen's house is where we do church sometimes. Chris and Jody's house on screens is where sometimes church happens on a Wednesday or whatever day it is. That's church, church's people. We kind of know that, but maybe we have to remind ourselves. If you ask Google, take me to Epping Forest Community Church, what would Google do? Google would bring you to this building. But if you ask God, take me to Epping Forest Community Church, where would he take us? Interesting, isn't it? Right, another question. Why are you part of church? Mike Stewart. <laughs> Why are you still part of church, Mike? Mike, for those of you who don't know, was one of the founder members of this bit of church. Why are you still part of church, Mike? I love it. I love it. See, amazing. Dave, Paul, why are you part of church still? Not necessarily this church, just church. Why, why do you believe in church? No, can't, can't have Mike's answer. <laughs> That's cheating. No, no. Okay, you don't have to answer. Does anyone else want to answer? Why, why are you part of church? What is it? Good. That's good. Great. I love it. Karen, did you want to? Josephine and Karen, go on. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Brilliant answers. We'll come back to some of those later. Um, I'd like us to look at Matthew chapter 16. Sorry, Jill, I should have told you that. Matthew chapter 16, verses... 13 to 20. I'm only really going to talk up to 18. Um, this has been such an encouragement to me recently. 
Um, I might get around to telling you why later, but there's, there's something in here. Um, Karen, are you okay to read that? So that yes. Um, you might want to grab that. I've got verses 13 to 18 here. Oh, okay. Just, okay. just read those then. That's fine. Yeah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So that's like the, the first idea of church that we get, really, from Jesus. Um, and as I said, I can't talk about every part of it much as I'd like to. There's, there's, there's no time, really. Um, but I'd like to ask this question. What is Jesus building his church on? What is actually the rock? When, it, when he says to, um, to, to Peter, blessed are you, <laughs> blessed are you, because this was not revealed... To, uh, to you by flesh and blood. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What's the rock? And the obvious answer is Peter himself, because that's kind of what Jesus seemed to be saying. And, and also, when you look at um, the, the kind of the first church in Acts 2, the first ch church in Jerusalem, which happened straight after Pentecost, it, it was, after all, founded on the back of Peter's preaching. 3,000 or 5,000 or however many people were saved and baptized that day. Uh, and when you read about the nature of that church that was founded in Acts 2, it's actually a pretty amazing creature. So it would be a reasonable assumption to say that Jesus means Peter himself or... Maybe he means the kind of person that Peter was or, or the kind of faith that he displayed. But I don't think Jesus means that. I don't think he means Peter or his personality or his character. <laughs> Are you getting worried? Don't get worried. Oh, you cheered. Okay, good. I'm sorry, I thought Chanchoti said you were getting worried. Um, I believe, right, this is important, okay. I believe that Jesus is saying that the rock represents a God-given revelation of the truth. What truth? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And for Peter and, and all his kind of peers and, and all the Jews, that meant the Messiah, the promised one, the one they'd been waiting for to rescue the Jews for hundreds of years. Now, hopefully you know all about this, a little bit of Jewish history, and I haven't got time to tell you if you haven't, so you'll have to ask Dave or whoever. <laughs> um, and we bring out these verses, you know, verses like Isaiah 9 at Christmas. You know the one, the people who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light, and then it continues on, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We know all those. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. That, that's talking about the Messiah. Later on in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, etc. That's talking about the Messiah. We look at them now and again. 
that for the Jews, they'd have been really, really familiar with those and other passages like them. They will have memorized them because they spoke about the future coming of the Messiah, the Christ, their saviour, the one who was going to make everything right, restore the fortunes of Israel, crush their enemies. They were desperate for him to appear. So when, pa- so when Peter says, you are the Christ, you, this person standing before me that I've lived with for the last two or three years, that's major. It's not just a casual acknowledgement that Jesus was a special kind of guy who did special kind of things. No, he was recognizing that Jesus was the promised one, the promised savior, not another forerunner like Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist all come to life again. And actually, just as an aside, talking about John the Baptist, let's just think about this. Even though John the Baptist spent his entire adult life preparing the way for Jesus and baptized him in person, during which the heavens opened and a dove came down and alighted on Jesus and a voice said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And even though he kept hearing regular reports through whatever his grapevine was about various miracles of healing and deliverance and provision, he still sent two of his own followers, John the Baptist sent two of his own followers to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we be expecting someone else? Even John the Baptist didn't know. He wasn't quite sure. Seriously, I just I can't quite get over that. But so you get the picture. No one was really sure if Jesus was the Messiah or not, even though they saw him do all these amazing things. Not even the guy that baptized him and prophesied his coming and prepared people to receive him. And maybe even Jesus' own disciples weren't that sure. Are you really the Christ? Maybe they had doubts. Maybe they, he didn't fit their imagination in terms of how he looked or how he behaved or what he said or he didn't have the right political message or maybe their parents and grandparents had sort of told him what to expect and it just didn't, it just didn't quite fit. Who knows? So that's why it's a big deal that Peter says, you are the Christ. He's putting his stake in the ground. If you like, he's making a faith decision that he's going to put this trust and belief in this man He didn't work it out based on observations. He didn't deduce it logically or analyze it critically. It wasn't that someone told him. He didn't think, well, Jesus is the most likely person to be the Messiah as far as I can see. No, he didn't do that. It was a statement of faith based on something deep in here, a spiritual truth. Here it is again. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That was a God-given revelation. That's what Jesus said. He said, wow, Peter, this understanding hasn't come out of your brain. It's been transferred into your spirit, into your very being by God himself. And that's the crucial thing I need to build my church. I believe that Jesus builds his church when people get the spiritual reality of who he is and who his father is. That's the rock of revelation which is necessary in order for him to build effective church. If you know anything about the life of Paul, Saul of Tarsus as he was, you will immediately call to mind how the same revelation he had of Jesus ultimately enabled God to help him found churches and spread the gospel. Same thing, revelation of who Jesus is. So it seems to me that this was a really important stage in the disciples' training. They'd been with him a while, seen the miracles, heard the teaching, understood the message of salvation. They needed the understanding of who Jesus is. That's the spiritual foundation on which Jesus builds his church. Not miracles, not clever preaching, not hundreds of people saved. All of those things can and do happen. They are not the foundation for church.
And that's why when we tell the gospel message to people, we need them to understand that Jesus is not just someone who loves us, walks with us, forgives us, comforts us. Actually, any decent human being could do any of those things. And Jesus does do those things, but that is not the gospel. The crucial truth we need to remember that it's because of who Jesus is, the only son of the living God, that he is the only person who can connect us to God with an unbreakable link because he is the only person who has the authority and power to do away with every barrier that comes between us and God. End of. That's in a nutshell, that is the gospel of salvation. That's what we're about. So to recap and also to press this point home, in case we haven't got it, the church is built on the foundation rock of revelation. It's not a building. It's not even just a collection of people. It's it's a people who believe and who get who Jesus is, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. It's the spiritual lifeblood of the church. Its DNA is supernatural. Its inception is heavenly. Its identity is spiritual. And that's why church is not like any other organization. It's not a charity. It's not a social action group. It may have a mission statement and a vision and a website. It might have have to produce accounts and pay bills and employ staff. But the church is birthed from revelation, and that's key. So, now, what is the purpose of church? Anyone? Change people's lives. Okay, good one. Anyone else? Purpose of all nations. That was the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. Anyone else? Any other purposes? Go on. I know you've heard my talk. You can't. Go on. What is it? Go on. Go on. No. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Yes. To demonstrate the wisdom of God. When I was talking this through with Rob, he said, oh, what about this one? I was like, oh. Okay. Yeah. yeah, go on, Rob. Sorry. It is important. It's really important. Okay, we are coming to that. Well, I believe the church has a spiritual purpose and a natural or earthly purpose. And hopefully, you won't be surprised if I tell you that the spiritual purpose is the crucially important one that we need to get right in here. Okay, first. And I don't have a, a, a lot of time to spend on this bit, but at the end of um, the thing that Karen read, it said, the gates of hell or Hades will not come against the church. And that should, in our minds, triple underline in red pen that we are a spiritual work of God because the gates of hell coming against us, that's a spiritual thing. We don't fight with weapons of flesh and blood. We fight with, yeah, yeah. And that's vital to our effectiveness that we know we are spiritual. We are a spiritual work of God because it's tied up with our identity. So, if we know we're from a heavenly perspective, then we're far... Sorry, if we know who we are from a heavenly perspective, we are far more likely to achieve our earthly purpose. In fact, I would say knowing your identity is crucial if you have a purpose to fulfil. And um, Kelly, who's just walked in, (laughs) there's a little example here to explain what I mean. Kelly is our Grosvenor Hall's booking secretary. That's In this setting, that is her identity, And so her purpose is clear to her. She has the authority that goes along with that, and she fulfills her purpose well because she fully understands what she's supposed to do because she's got her identity. I'm the booking secretary, so you ring me if you want to book the hall. I'll tell you how it works. Yeah, it's that simple, really. So what is the spiritual purpose of the church? What is our supernatural and heavenly identity? First of all, we are the dwelling place of God. 
In the Old Testament, Solomon built a beautiful temple using the best materials and the most skilled craftsmen. They used these sort of dressed stones which were prepared carefully off-site and then, and then brought onto site and built together according to God's design. It's pretty lavish, pretty expensive. <laughs> and you can read about it in two chronicles. And the, the, the original design for the temple was to be a place, like a resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. It was very special to the Jews. Now, however, we are the stones. We are living stones. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, it says this, we, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple. And it also says that we are all priests. You need to listen to Rich's talk from last week if you don't know what I'm talking about. But we are, we are all priests. This spiritual temple we're part of functions in the same way as, as the original temple. We are able to hold somehow the presence of God. I mean, the very idea of that is mind-blowing to me. We don't just rely on the chief priest and the rest of the priesthood to go in and out of the holy place to minister to God, seek his will, and, ad and administer his goodness and forgiveness and peace and grace to us. Or in today's church, that might be the equivalent of the leaders. No, we don't, we don't do that. We all do it for each other. We are all priests. And in this way, we are a spiritual temple. And Paul states very clearly in Ephesians 2, God is pleased to dwell in this spiritual building. So one of the spiritual purposes of church is that we create a dwelling place for the presence of God. So that's really mind-blowing. Has anyone got any questions or anything to say? Okay, secondly, and, and there's no order to this, it's just as they occurred to me, it's what Rob said. Church is a declaration and a demonstration to angels and demons of God's glorious or manifold wisdom. It really is. And if you don't believe me, you need to read Ephesians 3.10. And I'm not sure quite how or why that works. It's another one of those things that I can't get my head around. And I actually spoke on this very passage uh, two or three years ago, um, which is why it's a bit embarrassing when I was talking to Robin saying, what's the church for? And he quoted it back to me, and I thought, oh, I should know that. I spoke on it. <laughs> um, but it still feels like a mystery to me. How can we, you know, us, be a demonstration of the indescribable wisdom of God? I mean, look at us. I, th I think we're lovely, but, you know, really? It just seems amazing. Does God actually see us like that? Is he that proud of us? Evidently so. It's like he wants to show us off to heavenly beings. And I, I truly, I don't, I don't get that. But it could be this, or this could be a part of it, when a random collection of, you know, let's face it, maybe slightly weird people sometimes, somehow manage to function effectively as a group, submitting themselves to God, loving each other, and de dedicating themselves to the gospel of Jesus for the sake of something greater than ourselves, could that somehow be so magnificent and beautiful that it makes our Father want to point it out as a proof of his goodness and wisdom? Could be. Might get a flavour of that in coming weeks. And then thirdly, something we refer to very often, we operate as a spiritual body fully in tune with our spiritual head, which is Jesus Christ. When we function as well as a healthy body does, all the organs and muscles working together to create life 
automatically producing the right response to an external stimulus, like a healthy body, we demonstrate the nature of the perfect union between God and man. And you can find that uh, in Ephesians as well. Now it's chapter 122. We are united in purpose and spirit. Each part does what it's best at. I don't want to say too much more. It should be a familiar idea to most of us. And there are other people like Rob, maybe, who might want to delve into that at some point. Um, So that's the spiritual purpose of the church. That's our identity. What about the natural purpose? Once we've got our spiritual identity in place, our earthly purpose has a good, solid base to sit on. Our spiritual identity... It just is. It is what it is. And our job in that respect is to recognize it, remind ourselves of it regularly, and work together from that knowledge. But our earthly purpose is where we have to roll up our sleeves. And we've already touched on this and had a few answers. Why are we here? So the broad purpose of the church, as Mike said, is found at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' final injunction to his own followers, which in summary says this, go and make disciples of all nations. So I just want to break that a little bit down a little bit to see what it looks like in terms of our purpose. Um, and firstly, and I do actually think this is the most important thing, we are a vehicle for the Gospel. We are a means of connecting man with God a means of bringing revival and a means of welcoming the return of Jesus. Now, now God is not dependent on the church to do that, but he chooses to use us as a vehicle for that. Salvation is an absolutely vital first step for anyone to be connected to God. You can't be an effective church without believers. (laughs) It's like wanting to have a family but not realising that people have to be born for that to happen. Whether we're natural, enthusiastic street evangelists or slightly nervous truth carriers, we all have a responsibility to point people to Jesus. Every single born-again Christian carries the transformative power of Jesus in their life. Okay, that's the real truth. And sometimes that just shines out regardless, and people fall to their knees and ask us what they must do to be saved. Anyone had that happen to them? (laughs) And sometimes we actually have to tell people about it. (laughs) So I'll say it again. The gospel is central to our existence as church. No gospel message equals no church. And without that, we don't have a whole lot of hope of handling revival and the return of Jesus, and it's important. So what else are we here for? Church is a vehicle for making disciples because salvation is not just a once and for all event. Jesus said, make disciples, not converts. It's a very important difference between the two. Making true disciples is about living in the fullness of the gospel message, about embracing everything that salvation is about. The Bible says in various places we have been saved, we are being saved, Karen said, and we will be saved. And it's the our being bit that we're concerned with in this section about making disciples. Helping each other to live in the fullness of salvation. Every consequence of what Jesus did on the cross is ours to live in. Every fear and rejection dealt with, 
each mind renewed so that each life can be transformed. That's the fullness of the gospel. I, the way I think of it is that people you know, who are thoroughly and completely saved, transformed by the renewing of their minds. I'd love to go on, but anyway, I haven't got time. So. <laughs> so, we said that church is a vehicle for communicating the gospel and a vehicle for making disciples. I also think it's a training ground for both of those. And I love that idea that we can learn as we go along. And, and from the Bible, we learn what the gospel of salvation actually is. And I think that would be a really interesting exercise one day to ask people, what do you think the gospel is? Really interesting. I haven't got time for that. Um, once we, you know, when we know what the gospel is, we learn how to communicate those truths to others in a way that they can receive them and accept them. As I said earlier, some of us are natural-born street evangelists and others of us would shrivel if you put us on the Broadway with a handful of why Jesuses. But church is a training ground for all of us to be ready to give her the defense for the hope that's in our hearts, to have our feet fitted with the good news message of the gospel. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I've got time, but I'd love ideas of how we can do that. And but I just think when time is running out now, so... Um, maybe we'll come back to that. Um, it happens naturally as you get to know the Bible. I, I really believe that. As, as, as you hear other people's stories, spend time with people, get to know God the Father, work out what's important to him, align your lives to that. As, as that happens, as we look at Jesus' life and see what was important to him, what did he talk about, who did he spend time with, we discuss that with each other. We help each other to be confident in our own knowledge of, of who God is, what the gospel is. And somehow we grow so much in our love for God that we can't help telling people about him. Like the disciples in Acts, there was a point where they were commanded to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They said, we can't help it. Um, I, I went to a wedding last week and I was, uh, I was chatting briefly to the, the mother of, of the bride last week and she said, oh, I think I've, I've got a ministry and having a glass of wine and then sharing the gospel. But she said she was just, you know, she was just like, you know, full of everything. And she said, I was talking to this guy and she was saying, I just love God. I just love him. You know, I just, I just can't help it. You know? I just, I loved it. I loved what she said. You know, it just... You know, don't think it was the wine talking, but she, she just, she was so full. I, I just can't help it. I just love him. I can't help it. And Jesus, of course, didn't leave us on our own to get on with it. He didn't just say, oh, yeah, there's the Bible, get on with it. He didn't, he didn't do that. He sent the Holy Spirit to teach and guide us, to help us understand scripture, to recognize truth when we see it, to recognize his prompting in our everyday lives, to go and Talk to that person, give something to that someone, share something with someone. And that helps us to pray. It helps us to point people to Jesus, which helps them to live in all the goodness that he's won on the cross for them. Okay, nearly done. Last of all, I don't mean last as in least important, um, number four I think it is. We are a visible testimony to the goodness of God. I think somebody said that. And that's a little bit like what we said earlier about God demonstrating his wisdom to the heavenly beings. We demonstrate the nature of God by how we treat each other. John 13 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. That's how the world will know you are my disciples. 
Why is it a new commandment? Well, the old one says, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. But Jesus is saying, love your neighbor the way I love you. That's really different. And that requires us to get to know how does Jesus love us? Back to the Bible again. We need to get to know who Jesus is, what he said, how he lived, what was important to him. Wish we had time to go into that one as well. (laughs) So, um, to conclude, I'd, I'd like to repeat what I said at the beginning. Church is like no other organization on earth. It's not a charity or a philanthropic organization. It's not there to embrace progressive thinking or to find a way of helping us Christians fit in with whatever the current worldview is. If we as church, for example, say that we cannot promote the interests of the LGBTQ movement or sanction abortion or turn a blind eye to adultery, we will offend people and we may lose members. But our purpose is not about gaining members and getting bigger and bigger. Our purpose is to make true disciples of Jesus by connecting them to God through the gospel. And that purpose is anchored in our spiritual identity. Knowing our identity is crucial to fulfilling our purpose. And how well we do that will determine how Jesus judges us at the end of time. So as we go into the next season, one of the most important things I believe we need to ask ourselves as individuals is, are we up for this? Is this what you want? Do we we want to be part of a church that's committed to achieving the purpose of God in this area at this time? Because we can't do it by default. I know people who have, have given up careers and and opportunities because they just they love church they want to be part of church it is our whole life it isn't let's just turn up on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whenever at women's group or whatever it it's our whole lives it's it's demanding the gospel is demanding we each have to be intentional and dedicated if this is going to work but it's such a noble thing to be part of church such a noble thing So we've just got a few minutes. Let's just take a bit of time to um, reflect. I'm sorry if I've gone quickly. (laughs) Um, If you need to do a bit of business with God, that's fine. Take your time. Um, If you want someone to pray with you afterwards or you've got things you want to ask me or someone else, find someone you trust and and just get with them. Uh, and, And if that still doesn't do it and you, you need more time, then, you know, contact someone during the week and, and get together and talk and pray because this is important. And if you want to know who on earth this Jesus is and why he is so vital to us, come and ask me afterwards, okay? So, um, yeah, let's just have a few minutes. I think the children come in about 12, is that right? So, yeah, let's just take a little bit of time.